there's some real gaps in understanding or even labeling or naming racism racism and it manifests in in all in all areas of the work but i i think i'm hopeful that because of the impact of black lives matter across every sector because of covid-19 really highlighting how it's affected different populations differently i i hope that there's a window of opportunity to really think critically and change these these really unequal power dynamics welcome back to the rethinking development podcast my name is safa and i'm your host Thank you for joining me as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all career stages and organizational affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different guests. Today I'm joined by Jessica Odi. Jessica is an education and emergency specialist and a PhD candidate at the University of East London Centre for Migration, Refugees and Belonging, where she's also a lecturer as part of an open learning initiative, higher education preparation course for asylum seekers and refugees. Her current research focuses on diverse young people's experiences of education in emergencies, colonial legacies, and how race, power and privilege intersect with humanitarian education responses. She has worked with organizations such as Oxfam, War Child UK, Save the Children, Lutheran World Federation, and others. Jessica, thank you for joining me today. It's great to speak with you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Wonderful. So just to start the conversation, I know you originally trained as a teacher. Could you tell us what motivated you to become a teacher? What were some of the experiences that drew you to that career path? So I had maybe kind of an unconventional entry into the humanitarian sector, but also in education. I live in the UK and growing up, I was part of a scheme which was aimed at children from socially, economically marginalized areas to try and support them in accessing higher education. Because at the time, this was in the 90s, there was a huge, huge disparity between children who were from less economically affluent areas accessing higher education. And so I, I participated in this scheme and it really opened my, my eyes to the possibility of higher education being a possibility for me. And whilst I was at university, I was very fortunate to be able to do an exchange with the University of Havana in Cuba. And that, that really opened my eyes to so many, so many things. I was sharing and living uh, in the student accommodation there and attending classes in Havana with students from around the world, from Haiti, from Western Sahari territories, from Palestine, from the Brazilian landless movement, from Venezuela. And it opened my eyes up to education as being a form of humanitarian action, but also South-South humanitarianism. And the whole history of, or well, Cuba's history of international development and their approach to it. And I realized that I wanted to work in, in this area, in, in education, but in some of the contexts where my, my classmates were, were telling me about. So after graduating, I, I taught in the UK. I trained as a secondary school teacher through a scheme called Teach for All. It's now a global movement it's in, in many different countries. And after doing that for several years, I, I then took my master's in humanitarian action, which led me to an internship in Israel, where I worked for a charity 
the African Refugee Development Centre, which worked with African asylum seekers from Sudan and Eritrea, which at that point in 20, 2010, over 80,000 asylum seekers had, had crossed into Israel in that year. And many of them were unaccompanied children who one of the driving factors had been that they wanted to continue their education. Some of them were coming from, well, from, from different contexts, from protracted refugee displacement settings where there had been very, very few opportunities for them. And that, that led me to short consultancy with UNHCR. And from there, my first education emergency role was Save the Children in 2011. That was my route from teacher to education in emergencies. Very interesting. So you mentioned your MA research. In that work, did you feel kind of a sense of responsibility to have your research be translated into advocacy and policy change? Were you drawn to being on the side of programming and policy change and contributing to that work? Yeah. So when I went to Israel, I was doing my master's thesis and I was looking at education experiences of asylum seekers and refugees. And through that, I came into contact with UNHCR. And at that point, there really wasn't a focus on education access for refugees and asylum seekers. From a global perspective, UNHCR, they weren't really advocating or seeing this as within their remit. They saw protection as being perhaps quite a narrow, uh, narrow focus on kind of like traditional protection programming, but not seeing education as falling or being a type of protective service. And so very early on, I, I hoped that my research could contribute at a local or national level towards perceptions of education and also highlight the, the need for this to be a focus in, in refugee displacement settings. Since 2011, UNHCR has really changed their position, I think, in education and emergencies and education in refugee context. There's a you know, push from global level for this to be a priority in displacement settings. But for many years, this wasn't considered an essential service by the majority, then I would say, of humanitarian agencies and providers. You know, we, there's, there's varying stats, but the average time in displacement is, I think, around 20 years. So if you get displaced as a child or as a, as a teenager, you could spend all of your educational cycle in a, in a displacement setting with very, very few opportunities open to you. Mm -hmm. And so you continued your work down that career path. You were working later in Ethiopia and South Sudan. And in the context of education in emergencies, did you have certain experiences that made you realize that maybe more critical pedagogy or more equity-based or anti-racist-based approaches were lacking or something that wasn't really embedded in programming? Yeah, I mean, I, very, very early on, it became very obvious to me that there were some very serious unequal power dynamics, not just within the education and emergency sector, but within humanitarian aid in general. I, you know, I'm British Nigerian heritage. And when I was entering these spaces, and these international organisations, I was very, very surprised by the lack of diversity, whether it was in a head office position, I think particularly in a head office, when the head office is in a city like London, which is possibly one of the most diverse places on the planet. And yet you could go into a, a headquarters and it would be perhaps 90% white middle class. And when I went overseas and worked in some of these contexts, the power dynamics became even more stark across all areas of 
I guess, the humanitarian system. So from the structures, the the way that, you know, programs were designed, the unequal partner dynamics. I mean, all of the things that are being discussed at the moment around the inequities and racism in aid, of course, these affect every sector and education and emergencies is a part of those sectors. So all those behaviours, problematic behaviours were being replicated in, in the sector. And in your, you know, workplaces with your colleagues, did you feel like at that stage that there was, you know, opportunity to bring those concerns up? I would say until last year, there's been very little acknowledgement that racism uh, is an issue for our sector. And that kind of it reflects what you would see in education, international development in general. And there's been some really there's been some critical pieces written about this, that there's a sort of erasure of race or a silencing of race within the sector. People don't talk about it. It's like the elephant in the room. And it's only now I think that these things are being labelled what they are. And of course, there there are so many examples in this field where, you know, education emergencies has enabled access to, to millions of children to have education in some really, really challenging, difficult issues. You know, there, there are people who, you know, advocate very strongly for inclusion, for gender sensitive mainstreaming and recognize the need for like mother tongue multilingual instruction. But on the other hand, there's some real gaps in understanding or even labeling or naming racism, racism, and it manifests in, in, all, in all areas of the work. But I, I think I'm hopeful that because of the impact of Black Lives Matter across every sector, because of COVID-19 really highlighting how it's affected different populations differently, I, I hope that there's a window of opportunity to really think critically and change these, these really unequal power dynamics. Yes. And as you mentioned, this manifests in different ways. And you've written about how non-Western educational pedagogies and frameworks, how they're not integrated in education emergency services. Could you speak to us a bit about the hegemony of Western knowledge systems and the harm that that perpetuates? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I think it, you know, this, the knowledge production is really, really problematic in terms of, and it, and it really relates to, I guess, the way the structures, the policies, the systems that are in place. But take, for example, there's a real issue with diversity within the sector, within uh, global level education emergency positions. There is such a severe lack of diversity. Because there's been this avoidance of looking at things like racism, it impacts the way that the way that we respond to education emergency programs in terms of things like the programmatic design then, which is one of the main services that education emergency responders should be doing. But so often the design and delivery of the program, well, the design of the program at least, is done by a very different set of people who will then be tasked to deliver the program. And what that results in is somebody perhaps who has very little understanding of the local context, the language, the cultural and spiritual um, dimensions, the contextual knowledge of the current education system, being in a position where they are then designing a program which will be rolled out to potentially thousands of children in that emergency setting, which is extremely problematic and also quite ineffective because we're seeing that there are lots, and of course, in emergency, there, there are going to be lots of challenging children learning, but the responses that we have aren't necessarily able to address the needs of the learners or the families. And I think that is because of the you know, unequal power dynamics. 
And an example I can give is around how, like kind of at global level, there tends to be a particular focus on what is considered an education emergency response. So there's a focus on early childhood or primary education as being the main priority. Whereas if you go to a displacement setting and speak to children and families, there, there is a huge, huge demand from adolescents, from adults, for the opportunity to learn and to have access to education services. But these opportunities are so few and far between. And it's really because the people who actually are the ones who, who need the services, their voices are not being heard in these forums or their, their voices are not a part of the decision making or their voices are not a part of the design of the programme. You know, as an education emergency practitioner, I also know I've been in complicit in this in many instances. I remember years ago when I was in South Sudan working on a program, there was an opportunity for, for a proposal for an education program. And so we did, you know, the, the usual needs assessment. You went and talked to teachers, went and talked to young people through these focus group discussions, came back, wrote the proposal, which was then funded. But it was funded for education for children up until three and 17. And when the teachers then had to enroll students in the, in the classes, of course, there were children older than that who, who really wanted to participate. There were adults who are saying, well, actually, we, we haven't had an opportunity to, to learn for many, many years. Are there going to be adult learning opportunities? And when, when they came and spoke to me, you know, I was like, well, no, it's not in the proposal. And the head teacher said, well, you know, that's all well and good for you. You don't live in the camp. But he was like, I have people coming and knocking on my, on my door every day saying I want to be enrolled. And I'm the one who has to say, you know, sorry, that's not possible, even though, of course, the communities wanted this. And it continues. I mean, I think the absence from the people who are actually affected by the crisis in the design process of programs is, is extremely problematic. And it's something that, you know, since I've really, I've really woken up and realized that this is something that needs to be addressed and something that we need to advocate for. And there's loads of examples of where positive examples of where actually equity based design, particularly in education spaces, can transform classrooms, can really tackle and, and, and be radically inclusive. And I think that's something that as a sector, we need to definitely get better at doing. That example also connects with the role of donors and the role of funders and the power they kind of have in shaping programs. Could you speak to us a bit about the thoughts that you have in terms of the role that they play in relationship to the other stakeholders within the context of education and emergencies? Yeah, so I think, well, for many years, education and emergencies wasn't funded. It wasn't seen as a priority. And there was a lot of advocacy around highlighting that actually education is a right, that this is something that people want and deserve to have access to in, in conflict or crisis affected contexts. And I've been working in this sector for nearly 10 years, and I've definitely seen that big donors such as ECHO, USAID, CEDA, Danida, all of these donors, they're now on board with the concept with the idea of education and emergencies being a priority or being being part of the kind of humanitarian system. But there is still a massive disconnect between who gets to determine what should be a priority, what sorts of education programs should be funded. And perhaps it's because of my background as a secondary school teacher, I was so shocked when I first went and started working in these spaces, the way that donors, but also NGOs, were so dismissive of programming for adolescents or education opportunities for adolescents. 
I mean, there are some exceptions. For example, MasterCard Foundation are doing some really um, innovative stuff around supporting adolescents in emergencies. But predominantly, the focus is on primary and early years. And that's not to say that there shouldn't be funding for these these two really critical ages age ranges but there also should be funding available for adolescents and youth and adults as well because we cannot even think to address wider issues when we have you know over 700 million people um you know lack basic literacy skills yet if you're in a displacement setting it's very unlikely if you're above the age of 12 or 13 that you're going to access have a be able to access an education program for for your age However, I have been in donor engagement events where donors have pushed back and said, actually, we would fund this age range, but we never get proposals. We never get this put before us by the INGOs. And I found that really, really interesting. It made me really question, like, where is this resistance or dismissal of supporting this age range in emergency contexts? And that's really formed part of my research and looking into things around the kind of history of education emergencies or the history of education international development is deeply, deeply intertwined with colonialism and concepts of colonial education. And within the kind of British colonial history anyway, there was this real concept of educatability, this idea that certain populations weren't able to access or didn't have the kind of cognitive ability to access higher education or that um, you know, it was enough to give people basic education or technical training, and so I'm really interested to explore how how those legacies continue to manifest in in the programming that we do today. That's such important work. So you mentioned your PhD research. So after some years of working in the sector, you decided to to begin your PhD journey. Could you tell us about that decision and that transition from the field to academia? I started my PhD in 2018 and that really came about again from many years of working in a whole range of different education emergency settings and really wanting to, to understand why secondary education or uh, adolescent program was kind of perceived as like a, as a luxury or a second priority. And I wanted to, to kind of understand this rationale a bit deeper and decided to do my degree at the University of East London because they have a sense of refugee migration and belonging which is really rooted in kind of scholar activism and they they have been very um they were very active in the I say with quotations like the European refugee response back in 2016 they they set up a university for all in in Calais which was um, a huge displacement camp in France and they do a lot of very interesting work with asylum seekers and refugees in the UK. And one of the reasons why it was really important to be in an institution like that is because of, I think you mentioned it earlier, like some of the real issues that we see in academia, but also in aid around knowledge production and this kind of really extractive nature of knowledge production. I guess colonial in many contexts, the, the way and methods that are used to kind of mine displaced populations for information. And so I wanted to, to be somewhere where I could learn about more, well, learn about kind of like decolonial research methodologies, learn about kind of action research and really co-creating research design with refugees and asylum seekers. And so the focus on my research is really about collaborating with young people, co-creating research design questions together collecting data, looking at ways that they feel comfortable with this information being shared and kind of challenging a lot of the kind of deficit narratives that we, we see or are common in kind of 
INGO policy advocacy and comms. So this deficit narrative or, you know, your work on the concept of educability, could you tell us a bit about how that has shown up in the work that you see in the sector or the work that you've been involved with when you were working in the field? So each year there's, you know, as part of the humanitarian program cycle, all of the sectors set their kind of response plans for the year. And you can just go on humanitarian response info and you will see for every country there is a humanitarian response plan. So as part of my research, I started to look into these humanitarian response plans and time and time again, there were so few when when they set their targets and they say, for example, we're going to reach 500,000 children with education services. So frequently there was an age bracket on that. And there were very, very few opportunities for adolescents perhaps 1,000 in a context like South Sudan, you would see that, you know, only within the humanitarian response plan for that country, they were only seeking to support that amount of very small, minute number of adolescents. And it's really problematic uh, when when you see this in reality. Like a few years ago, I went, I had an opportunity to go to Uganda where I was supporting a project that was doing children's consultations with young people in three different refugee camps um, in the country. And I remember going to one of the camps and in a camp with a population of 100,000 with a high, high number of adolescents who, who'd come from a number of different locations, from Democratic Republic of Congo, from South Sudan, there was only one secondary school which had the possibility of teaching 100 children and, you know, in a camp where there were 100,000 people. And when I was talking to the different non-governmental organisations who were working in that space, this was not a priority for them. They didn't see this as something that they should be advocating for, that this was a kind of organisational priority. So I, I think one of the drivers perhaps behind doing this research is, first of all, to contribute to a body of evidence where there's very, very little that looks at this age range, and also to try and, and show that actually young people are really, really desperate for these opportunities and to have these opportunities and to really, for organisations to really unpick why, why they don't see this age group as a priority. And I think if we did have more equity-based programmatic design and we did actually involve people from the from the get-go in the project design our responses not just for education but for all our sectors would look very different. Yes so earlier you mentioned that in your current research you're trying to use approaches or research methods that are more around co-creation Could you share more about how you think maybe those can translate to the development sector or humanitarian sector? Yeah, so I've been really, I've been really influenced by a lot of the decolonial scholars and decolonial scholarship, the legacy of empire, we've got 500 years of history and resistance to coloniality. But I think in the past few years, there's been a kind of resurgence of interest around decolonization and and what that means there's a term it runs the risk of becoming a bit of a buzzword in essence it really is about interrogating actively dismantling and seeking to move beyond colonial most knowledge production systems structures and policies and that means that we have to really really be mindful of all actions anyone who is working in a in a humanitarian context has to i think have a level of reflexivity and 
from an academic perspective, there's there's been loads of writing on this by particularly in like critical race theory by scholars like Patricia Hill Collins from Kimberly Crenshaw around intersectionality. There, there's a whole wealth of scholarship out there around being mindful of how our positionality shows up in, in different spaces. And so for the humanitarian sector, I think we need to be really reflective on ways that we collect data, the way that we design programs, to be really mindful of who is in those spaces, who gets a seat at the table. We need to be mindful of our own positionality. So even if we're working in our country of origin, we all still you know, have different levers of privilege. And we need to be mindful of that, how that shows up in our work and how that may influence how a problem is framed. Uh, or even if it's a problem in the first place, we we should be considering if people who are impacted by the crisis get a say in the decision making. And if not, what ways are we planning to share the power with them? And I really think just like in action research, which is all about kind of challenging the hierarchy of knowledge in academia, within program design, we need to be positioning those who are at the margins as the leaders in the design process and the experts in their experiences. You know, it's not for somebody like myself who may not know the historical or economic or, you know, very limited understanding of the crisis to come in and to design an education program. It's not something that would happen in Western countries. You know, just take COVID, for example. We didn't see people from different countries flying in and shaping our education responses. So we shouldn't have this assumption that we're the best people to do it in these settings. The other thing is around relationships, which is really critical, something that comes up in research, but also within development and humanitarian aid is around the kind of unequal power dynamics that shape kind of international non-governmental organizations and local actors. Uh, you know, very often local or national partners will have limited scope to, to be in the project design phase, to negotiate budgets, to actually give critical feedback to the implementing partner in that role. And for me, I think we see such inequity because EIE sector, at least, is because we're trying to design inclusive programs, but our processes are not inclusive. You know, the right people aren't in the room. And so how can we expect to have an inclusive outcome? I also think to be mindful or try and reflect on how, you know, or if local national customs and practices are working together or to include or to exclude we, we should be as much as possible, and I say we, I mean, whoever's in the kind of positions of power, people who are in any position of power, need to be thinking about how they are going to cede power. How often a community is affected by a crisis, meaningfully engaged in, in planning an organization's response, or even getting to see the response plan. It's very infrequent. It's very rare that we have kind of even strategic advisory groups with different national hyperlocal stakeholders. Who, who have a critical role in inputting, reviewing, monitoring and challenging kind of our programs. This kind of two-way learning doesn't seem to be a priority. And, I'm, I, and when I'm saying all this, I'm not, while this is something that I've noticed in education emergencies, I know it's something that is prevalent in all of, all of the sectors, this unequal power dynamic or exclusion. But I think why it's particularly pertinent in education contexts is because there's a whole industry behind, I guess, like the knowledge production and, you know, who develops the guidance, who develops the toolkits, which are often used in these responses. If, if they're not from a local or national perspective, then how really, how useful can they be in, in these contexts? 
not to dismiss you know <laughs> everything of course there are approaches that have been maybe successful but we shouldn't just be copying and pasting from from one response to another and I think the other key thing is to make the invisible visible so I've yet to read an education emergency report that acknowledges the huge role that communities play in supporting each other with education opportunities that highlight the role of diaspora communities that demonstrate kind of local initiatives to to resource mobilization there's you know very little visibility of the role of national partners and community-led organizations in in most ingos kind of social media advocacy and comms even in terms of the dynamics so again at global level why is it that we have in many of these bodies you know predominantly all white all anglo anglophone staff leading initiatives or in these spaces so many important points <laughs> so to follow up on one of them in your work over the years have there been times i guess when maybe you were in a in a work situation where a colleague or a manager reacted in some way and in which you thought that was incorrect use of their power and did they cause you to think maybe you know i don't feel like this is the place for me or no it just motivated you to change things yeah i mean one of the reasons as well i think that i decided to take a step back from being a part of this expatriate kind of overseas deployment or overseas deployment types of roles is because I realized I was very uncomfortable with my complicity in a set of in a humanitarian structure that I found to be incredibly hierarchical with real racist policies and structures in place so just thinking about places where I've worked you know in South Sudan in 2011 2012 at the height of the civil conflict there, you'd have, you know, people who were, who had been displaced in extreme poverty, living in Juba, living in, in the graveyard, next to hotels, which at the weekends were full of expatriates spending $40, $50 on a bottle of wine and complaining incessantly about national staff or the fact that nothing worked in that country whilst, you know, driving around in four by fours. Um, I, I found that as a sector, you know, there there are some real issues that need to 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 be addressed. And of course, like talking to talking to my colleagues in these contexts, they I mean they see these inequities. They see the the fact that expatriate staff get more R and R than they do. You know, they get to go home and visit their families more than they do. They know that they're getting perhaps a third of the salary that somebody else is getting despite doing, you know, often more of the work. They see, you know, who gets to, to speak in meetings. The meetings are often in English as well, regardless of the, of the country. Uh, and, you know, there's the power of language. You know, if you speak, you speak the language, then you can participate. But the fact that, you know, I, it was only last year that I was on a call where we had simultaneous translation. And I was like, wow, this is so refreshing. Because in the majority, at global level at least, most of these panels, these discussions are done are delivered predominantly in English. And so you've got a very narrow group of people talking to a very narrow group of people and excluding, you know, thousands of people who, who actually probably do have the solutions or do have a valid input into tackling some of these issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now that you have taken this step back and 
you know, you have more of the researcher, lecturer hat on. Do you feel like this is um, the place that you'd want to stay or do you do have this plan to, after your PhD, focus more of your work and your time on program design work opportunities? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've really questioned my what my or if you know I should have a role in the, this sector and what my role should be. And I think at the moment I should be using the privilege that I have to be highlighting some of these issues, which are easier for me to do than for somebody else. You know, the repercussions. And I think that's the the one of the luxuries that I've been doing independent research work is that. The independency means that I may be able to say things that people in within their organisations may may not feel comfortable or able to say, especially if they are, you know, in an organisation with very little, which is the norm, with not a very diverse body, or if they feel that they could be penalised for for highlighting some of the systemic racial and intersectional inequalities that shape the sector. So for the mm-hmm. moment, yeah, I think I'm quite happy to be in the the research role and I think it's really important that as a sector we improve the way that we we do research that it shouldn't be extractive we should improve our practices and we should look at the ways that the you know research issues are framed like who gets to decide whether something is is an issue and who gets to um to shape the data who gets to decide what data is important I think there there's definitely room for criticality there And thinking about your work in terms of your research with young people who experience displacement and their access to education, what are some of the things you're learning from young people? Great question. So, so much has been coming up from the action research. I mean, first and foremost, the young people who are engaged in this project, they are kind of peer researchers. So they're conducting the research amongst their peers and using a wide variety of methods to do that so from photo voice so using photography audio blogs from that we're really getting a really rich data set I mean one of the one of the key things is that there is not one kind of universal refugee or IDP education story each student is is highlighting their own journeys their own challenges in continuing their education but also the the importance of peer networks and the important role that families play in enabling young people to continue to to learn in really really challenging contexts we're also learning a lot around how young people hope to to use their education how they see it as critical for addressing multiple areas in their life and not just for an individual gain either like seeing it very much tied to wider kind of social justice issues young people that I've spoken to or whose stories have been shared with me when they're saying you know, they hope to become a teacher or a doctor or an entrepreneur or a business owner it's not just for their own economic benefit but thinking about ways that that can support them and their families yeah uh, and they see it as a as one of the kind of key things that they need to to really thrive in this world Mm-hmm. And one aspect of going through experience of displacement and also just working in education emergencies is the need for a trauma-informed approach and being trauma-sensitive. Have you faced that that challenge? Yeah, of course. I think having a trauma-informed approach is, is critical to the work. I mean, I think all humanitarian work should come from a trauma-informed approach. And so often it doesn't. And so often, you know, the way that policy or 
outcomes is done is from a very is often from a practice which can actually re-traumatize the people that are supposedly you know we're supposed to be trying to help and that's why I think it's really important that we really reflect on the practices that we use so one of the things about participatory action research is that young people design the questions themselves when we do risk analysis with the young people it's really to to discuss risk in in all its elements like if you were to ask somebody this question that you've suggested what could be some of the consequences of doing that what could this potentially trigger how is this trauma sensitive how are we making sure that what we do doesn't do more harm so having a trauma sensitive approach is is really critical Mm -hmm. we've spoken a lot about what needs to change but in trying to kind of go more to what are the practical approaches that can be implemented. Could you speak to us a bit about your understanding of equity-based design and its relationship with the outcomes that we hope to achieve? So I think that if standard education emergency responses were designed from an equitable base, they would be decolonial and accountable to affected populations by default. That would be the outcome. And by equity-based design thinking, it for me, it's just a really interesting approach. It comes from design thinking, which was this kind of initiative that if you're designing a program or designing a product, then you really need to stay focused on the people you're designing for and like listening to them directly. You're going to arrive at kind of the optimal solutions that meet their needs. But design thinking, I think similar to like the humanitarian program cycle, is still problematic because It doesn't challenge the notion of expertise, like who gets to be the expert. And of course, we know that that is often linked to kind of colonial hierarchies of knowledge and that we so often see in many different spaces that, you know, the intersection between race, gender, social class, your passport can determine how you're valued in a space and whether your ideas will be taken up or not. So there's assumptions to this term expert and that these should be two separate groups. And with that, this assumption about the roles and responsibility. So equity-based design thinking is kind of like the next stage from design thinking. And it's it's really about repositioning the, the expert and saying that actually the person whose voice should be the most prominent in, in the design phase is the person who's going to be benefiting from this intervention. That really will shape the way the problems are framed and the way the solutions are proposed. Now. Equity-based design thinking, it has its origins from the US, so in itself, it's also not a particularly decolonial method. But I do think it really opens our eyes to a, to a process which allows us to really ensure radical inclusion. And there's loads, there's a lot of different models uh, around equity-based design, but I really liked one which is called equity times design, which I think is really applicable to, to education emergencies because it it states you should be approaching any problem by looking into the historical context with this principle of radical inclusion and that the importance of process of product. And then they have five principles, which they say, if you want to do this, you're you're required to design at the margins, start with self, so self-reflection, seed power, make the invisible visible, and then speak to the future. And, And this last thing about speaking to the future is you know, putting in place structures that today that we need if we really want to reframe reframe aid, if we really want to have 
equitable uh, aid sector, then we need to make sure that our actions radically rethink and address, you know, the prevalence of like racism, power imbalances and inequities that show up in so many of our programmes. For example, in EIE, education emergencies, we may have this big vision around an equal number of girls accessing education. So then we need to be thinking about like, you know, what what is the curriculum? What is the local context? What are the local knowledges that we can be using? Who are the stakeholders um, that need to be creating the solution? What What are we doing to support female teachers in the classroom what are we doing to support the training of female teachers how are we making sure that there's post-primary opportunities for girls to aspire to what funding is available within the community or within non-traditional donor driven funding opportunities how are we engaging with like cross thematic areas or local networks or diaspora groups and national philanthropies to diversify funding like what, what are we doing to reposition advocacy to shift this change I think as a process, equity-based design thinking offers a really great way to helping humanitarians to reframe current humanitarian programs. Yes, absolutely. For Maybe for many people, it's a new approach. It's something that they haven't really heard about yet. So thank you for the, the overview. And I think it gives a lot of food for thought. Yeah, I think that, you know, this type of dialogue is needed more, more than ever because we know global displacement is at an all-time high. And that we know that today the reality is that forced displacement is not only more widespread, but it's it's not a short term or temporary phenomena. And that means that the programs, the structures, the systems that humanitarian actors design today lay the foundations and set the pace for decades to come. So we need to be we need to be really, really critical and, and future thinking when designing programs. Yeah, I think that's so well said. Thank you so much for those words. It's been great to speak with you. We, we've touched on a variety of things. It's been really enriching and there's a lot to, to take in and think about. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in and supporting the podcast. I invite you to join in on the conversation by going to our website, hitting the send us a voice message button and sharing some of your thoughts with us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast player, rate and review past episodes, and share our conversations with your friends. You can also keep up to date with our latest episodes and offerings by signing up for our newsletter on our website and following us on social media. On our website, you can also find a donation link where you can choose either a one-time donation or reoccurring monthly donation option to help us cover our production costs. Thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.